If you would please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These are certainly familiar words, I think, to us all. But I suspect that most people, when they read 1 Corinthians 13, or they hear any part of it, have failed to understand Paul's purpose in writing it and what he intends by writing it. I want briefly to consider the background so that we can better understand what's going on here. 1 Corinthians was actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthians that we know of. He had written them previously and they had answered him and now he writes what we call 1 Corinthians as his answer to their response. In the first six chapters of this letter, Uh, He deals with issues um, that he has heard about, probably from the three men who brought the letter from the Corinthians to where Paul was in Ephesus, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Um, He writes near the end of the book, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Um, I can't help but wonder if part of what they supplied was a report about what was going on in the church in Corinth. And so in those first six chapters, he's not responding to the letter as such. That begins in chapter 7, and it goes to the end of the book. Paul answers the matters that the Corinthian believers, at least some of them, brought up in their letter to him. They have a different understanding of things than what Paul has taught them. And we, we know this because if you look at it at the beginning of certain sections, Paul will say, now about, and in chapter 7, verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about. And then chapter 7 deals with sexuality and marriage. Then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, now about food sacrifice to idols. Chapters 12, 13, and 14, now about spiritual gifts. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Chapter 15 is sort of iffy because he says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. I don't know that they necessarily had written to him about the resurrection, but that's what chapter 15 is all about. And then chapter 16, now about the collection for God's people. That is, they were collecting money to send to uh, their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were undergoing uh, persecution and a famine. 
You may notice that I didn't mention uh, chapter 11. It appears that in that chapter, Paul has sort of reverted to what he did in the first six chapters. He has heard a report from these three men about how the Corinthians are doing public worship and he is not pleased with them. And so he seeks to correct. In these chapters, Paul follows what some have called an ABA pattern. That is, A is the issue that they have written to him about, their understanding of it, and Paul begins to engage them. B is supporting material for his position. And then the second A, Paul says, okay, this is the way it is. He finally lays it out for them. He does that also, by the way, in chapter 5. There's a man who's uh, sleeping with his stepmother, and Paul at the beginning says, this is not good. And then all of a sudden, there's this middle section of the chapter where he starts talking about the Passover. And oftentimes the B, for if you didn't know better, you're like, what is Paul talking about? This has nothing to do with the issue. It in fact does. And then he returns to it at the end. And in chapter five, he finally says, you've got to kick this guy out. One of the things that is tricky about the ABA thing is that at the beginning, Paul will quote back to the Corinthians what they have written to him. And people today say, oh, that's Paul's position. So at the beginning of chapter 7, for example, it is good for a man not to marry. And people said, see there, Paul's against marriage. No, that's what the Corinthians had written to Paul. He says, okay, now that's what you wrote. Now let me tell you how it really is. And then in chapter 8, we know that we all possess knowledge The NIV, interestingly enough, has a footnote. We all possess knowledge as you say. This is their position. And in chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts. So we need to be careful. And I think many people have made many mistakes in this area because they don't realize there's a dialogue going on. They had written to Paul and Paul says, okay, now this is what you wrote. Let me tell you how it actually is. Okay. Chapter 13, which I've just read, is one of those B's, A-B-A. Because if you look at it, chapters 12 and 14 deal with, what, in part, uh, spiritual gifts and public worship. Chapter 13 says nothing about that. But it is, in fact, Paul giving uh, supporting material, theological material, to what he's trying to write about. This means we have to begin in chapter 12, because that's the A. We're just looking at the B right now, and that without any context, we could make it mean whatever it is we want it to mean. But if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. It is at points like this where the old King James, some think that we should put away, but it is extremely helpful, because what the King James translators did was, if they supplied a word, because oftentimes when you go from one language to another, you have to sort of add some words, they put it in italics. Okay? So if you look at the King James, if you have a King James, um, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts is in italics. It means that gifts is a word that is supplied by the translators. What Paul writes literally is now about spirituals, pneumatikon in Greek, which could either refer to gifts. I don't think that it does. It could refer to people who see themselves as the spiritual ones in the Corinthian church. 
And if you think about it, this fits in with what we've seen so far. In chapter 2, verse 15, he talks about the spiritual man. In chapter 3, he said, I would not address you or I could not address you as spirituals. Okay. So there are certain people in the Corinthian church who think that they are better than all the other Christians. They have gifts. They are more important. They are more spiritual than the Corinthians. And by the way, that's the way they use the word spiritual. Paul does not use it that way. When Paul says spiritual, he means the things of the spirit. Not carnal and then spiritual, higher up. That's the Corinthians talking. And again, it's a dialogue and we need to make sure we keep track of who's saying what. There are those who think they are better than others. And this is reflected in their behavior. In this book, 1 Corinthians, there are 11 different issues that Paul addresses. And 10 of them have to do with behavior. How the Corinthians are acting. And they are acting rather badly because they think they're better than everyone else. And as we will see in chapter 13, because they do not love their fellow Christians. One of the keys to this whole book is found at the beginning of chapter 8. It is the fundamental difference between how they see the Christian faith and how Paul sees it. Let me just read to you the first three verses. Now about food sacrifice to idols. Okay, so that's what they had, they brought up the issue. We know that we all possess knowledge. That's the Corinthians speaking. Paul answers, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He continues, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. The Corinthian position is that we know that we all possess knowledge. Paul's response is, this is not the basis of the Christian faith. Love is. Secondly, You don't know as much as you think you do. And thirdly, if in fact not everybody knows, then you need to act in a different way than the way you have been acting. And you should act based on love, not on knowledge. It's interesting the Corinthians don't say, we all know, but rather we all possess knowledge. The difference is, They don't think this is something they have learned. It is something the Spirit has given to them supernaturally and they see themselves and they become puffed up because look at what the Spirit has given me. So they see themselves as spirituals. They have more knowledge than others. And Paul vehemently disagrees. He brings up two contrasts. First of all, knowledge puffs up. It leads to pride. It gives you a false sense of reality. You think you know more than you actually do. Or actually less than you think you do. They thought they knew everything. And Paul's like, I'm sorry, you don't. In contrast to knowledge, love does not puff up. It builds up. The aim of Christian ethics is not to be self-sufficient, is not to be all-knowing, but it is in fact to help others, to benefit our brothers and sisters. And this is what love seeks to do. This is what we see in chapter 13. The second contrast is the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. On the other hand, the man who loves God is known by God. This is the key to this book. Knowledge is not the key to Christian behavior. Knowledge is not the key. Amazingly, knowledge is not even the key to Christian knowing. 
Love is the key. For Paul, the foundation of the Christian faith and life is love. For the Corinthians, it is knowledge. So there is a fundamental conflict between the apostle and those in Corinth. And the result is, when you look at their behavior, um, they behave rather badly. They don't share in communal meals when the church is to get together and eat a meal. They don't share with those who are in need. They don't wait. They have the Lord's Supper await. You know, They don't wait for them. They just go ahead and do it. Uh, and it is because they think knowledge is the key and not love. They see themselves as superior. They simply do not love one another. So in this chapter, Paul spells out what love is. First of all, he says it is necessary. The first three verses of this chapter. Without love, Paul says, I am, in fact, like a pagan. You know, a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Some people see this as like empty noise, you know, just sort of an echoing thing that happens. But I actually grew up... uh, with a cultural minority in the Philippines where gong music was the fundamental part of our musical repertoire, if you wish. And I love gongs. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. So Paul's not somehow becoming a music critic here and saying that that music is not... He's saying that's the music they play in the pagan temples. And if you don't have love, you might as well go back. You might as well go back. You're just like them. You produce nothing of value. The second thing he says is, if I don't have love, I am nothing. And then lastly, in verse number three, he says, I gain nothing. So love is necessary. And having established that, Paul now spells out what love is, the qualities of love. He uses 15 verbs, that is action words, which can be divided into three groups. First of all, he starts out with two positive expressions. Then we have eight negative expressions, if you wish, what love is not or does not do. And then he ends with four always. You know, it it always does this. So he starts out, love is patient, love is kind. There are actually two sides of the same coin. One might argue that patient, being patient is passive, being kind is active. By patient, Paul is describing patience with people. And the quality of patience with events and circumstances is mentioned at the end. Love always perseveres. But here at the beginning, he's talking about how we treat each other. That love is patient. Someone has defined Christian patience as the ability to be wronged and wronged again and have the ability to retaliate but never think to do so. Love instead chooses to suffer. This is 180 degrees from what Greek culture taught the Corinthians. In the pre-Christian world, is it any different in the post-Christian world, this is a uniquely Christian idea. To the Greeks, patience was never considered a virtue, but in fact a sign of weakness. Aristotle saw the great Greek virtue as the refusal to tolerate any insult or injury and a readiness to strike back at any hurt. In our culture, revenge is prized. Think of all the movies that could not be made if revenge was not the driving force. But it's not only patient, it is kind. Patience says, I will take anything from whoever seeks to do me wrong. Kindness says, I will give anything that will be used to that person. 
to meet their need. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke these radical words of love. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. So love is patient, love is kind, and so far the Corinthians are 0 for 2. They are not marked by patience. We see in chapter 6 they go to court to settle their differences. They're not marked by kindness. We see this in their abuse of the Lord's Supper. They don't wait for one another. Okay, that's what love is. What is love not? Love, or what does it not do? It does not envy. Okay, now they're 0 for 3. Because the word that Paul uses earlier to denote rivalry and strife is what is what we find here. It's translated oftentimes as jealous. There are two types of envy. I want what you have, or I don't want you to have what you have. But love is not that way. Love does not boast. This is paired with the next quality, that it is not proud. But I think it's also tied to envy. Why do people boast? Because they want to be envied. They want others to envy them. The teacher wrote in Ecclesiastes 4.4, And I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. The driving, the motivating force is envy. Love is not proud, puffed up. Okay, what's the count now? They're 0 for 5. Knowledge puffs up, Paul tells them, but love builds up. Love is not rude. It does not act shamefully or disgracefully. Rudeness, I think, is seen in us saying, I don't care how this affects you, because I don't love you. I will do what I want, whether you like it or not. This is a failure to take others into account. Love is not self-seeking. It's not selfish. It's not self-centered. It doesn't seek its own good above anyone else's. Selfishness incorporates the other negative qualities that are listed above. Paul told the Galatians, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Love is not easily provoked, the King James has, and the NIV is not easily angered. Here Paul is speaking of a self-centered anger, an anger that wounds, injures, scars. Why do we get angry? Well, often it is because we want our own way and we don't get it. I want to be comfortable and my comfort has been disturbed. I want to look good and I think I've been made to look foolish or less than what I want, how I want people to see me. Do you remember what James wrote? My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is literally a mathematical calculation. You do not keep a list, uh, a bookkeeper's ledger. Uh, You don't keep a file of all the wrongs people have done against you. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. These, again, are two sides, I think, of the same coin. We don't delight in what is wrong, but we rejoice with the truth. Well, having told us what love does not do, Paul now ends by telling us the always or the all things of love. Love always protects. This means to cover with silence, to suppress. Out of respect, out of love, we don't 
sort of blasted out, blared out to the world, this is what so-and-so has done. Instead, we seek to protect them because we love them. We are reluctant. We should be reluctant to drag a scandal out in front of others. We see this with Joseph and Mary. He was reluctant to make her a public disgrace. It's human nature to want to tell. Uh, You see this in kids. They love to tell on each other. Um, Some never grow up and sort of live this way their whole life. In Proverbs we read, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. Love always trusts, that is, we believe the best about someone. Love sees the weakness of another person, the flaws, and in fact throws a cloak of silence over it and believes the best. Love is not cynical or suspicious. You say, well, that's, Damon, that's really being quite naive. Aren't you just deceiving yourself? We should, in fact, as people of God, believe in the grace of God. Love chooses to believe that God's grace can and will change that person. Perhaps not in my time frame, not when I think it should happen, but God, in fact, will do his work. Love looks beyond the person to the grace and power of God. But what if you believe the best and the person doesn't change? And then your faith begins to fade that this person will ever change. Then what? Well, Paul tells us love always hopes. When you run out of faith, there is still hope. And when you run out of hope, there is still love. Love always perseveres. It endures all things. This isn't referring to minor annoyances, you know, little bumps or holes in the road, um, but standing up against incredible opposition, active endurance in the face of opposition. Having said that, Paul now, in the last part of chapter 13, speaks of the permanence of love. If you look at verse number 8, love never fails. That says it all, doesn't it? What, what more needs to be said? Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We find love along with hope and faith. By the way, we see this in other places. This isn't just a 1 Corinthians 13 thing at, you know, at the end of the chapter. This is a recurring theme in Paul's writings. I'll just mention one. This is in Colossians 1.5. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you already have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Paul mentions these three together uh, over and over again in his writings. There is faith, there is hope, and there is love. But it is love that is given the preeminent place. Why? 
Well, some have suggested because when we get to heaven, you know, in the new creation, we won't need faith, we won't need hope. But love will still be there. That part is true, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Because Paul's talking about the present time. The Corinthians have a problem right now, and he's seeking to correct that problem. So why is it that faith is the greatest of these three? I think it is for this reason. You can have faith and you can have hope without love. But you cannot have love without faith and hope. Because Paul has told us, love always trusts and has faith. Love always hopes. And this is what Paul's, why he writes this, to correct the Corinthian behavior. But the question might be, who are they supposed to love? Each other. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is because they have failed to recognize that, that they have treated each other shamefully, abysmally. They've abused each other. And Paul writes this to those who see themselves as more spiritual than anyone else to say, no, it's about love. It's not about knowledge. In some ways, one might see this sermon as the third in a series of meditations. The first was in the series on miracles, a meditation on faith. As we looked at the miracles during Jesus' earthly ministry, we saw, as illustrated in a number of miracles, that people can have faith and should have faith for others. So the royal official's son is sick and he goes to Jesus for Jesus to heal him. The centurion's servant is near death and he wants Jesus to heal him. The four friends want their friend who is paralyzed to be healed and they lower him through the roof in a house for Jesus to heal him. Last Sunday, our second meditation was on gratitude. And in part, we looked at gratitude in the light of ingratitude. It's opposite. Both gratitude and ingratitude are closely tied to what we observe, what we notice. Ingratitude focuses on the flaws. The things that are always there that at one point or another will in fact tend to disappoint us. And when it comes to the people of God, we will find many such things. People look or want to find a church, a community, a congregation where everyone is perfect, where no one has any flaws. One could say the same thing about relationships, that when people, in fact, get into a relationship, oftentimes they leave it because it, in fact, is not perfect. On the other hand, if you are marked by gratitude, and if we practice gratitude, we are more likely to notice the goodness and the beauty of everyday things and the good and beautiful things in each other. And by God's grace, we will be content and feel blessed. We're eager to pronounce blessings on one another, knowing full well the flaws that each of us has. Love covers over all wrongs. In a grateful community, individuals are acknowledged and honored. 
in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, in a grateful community, we have hope. But as I said earlier, it is possible to have faith without love. It is possible to have hope or even to be grateful without love. But it is not possible to have love without faith and hope. Paul tells us, love always trusts, love always hopes. So the beginning point is love, not faith, not hope, not gratitude, and not knowledge, as the Corinthians would have us believe. The beginning point is love. And if somebody says, but Damon, what is love? Well, okay, we've just looked at 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, Paul spells it out, spells it out for us. But consider those who had faith for someone else. I mentioned just a moment ago, the royal official, the centurion, the four friends. Was it not in fact love that caused them to go to Jesus to ask Jesus to heal the person in need? The royal official's son, the centurion's servant, the four friends with their fifth friend there who is on the mat paralyzed. In the same way, we are to love each other and have faith for each other. When one of us or more is at a point, perhaps of great darkness, when believing and trusting God seems impossible. It's not a question of, oh, I believe, help me, help my unbelief. It's like, I can't even believe anymore because of great difficulties, whatever. As a congregation, because we love that person, we should say, that's okay. We will believe for you. Because we love you, we will believe for you. Love never fails. As I've said it earlier, that says it all, doesn't it? Because we love one another, when one goes into a dark, deep valley, we should be there for them. One of the difficulties I think we have is oftentimes we don't tell people Oh, by the way, I'm in great darkness right now. I'm finding it almost impossible to believe in God at this point. But if somebody does say that to us, we say, oh, what's wrong with you? We shouldn't say, in fact, that's okay. I will believe for you. In the same way, when one of us may have lost hope, for whatever reason, we who love that person should say, we will hope for you. We are grateful for you because we love you. Jesus told his disciples, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The mark of the church is to be love. Sadly, in the modern church today, I don't think that's what people know us for. But if we, in fact, do not love one another, and if we do not practice love, then our behavior will reflect that, and we see it in the Corinthians. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. You have a congregation of people, perhaps several congregations, we're not exactly sure about the makeup of the church in Corinth, but you have people who have lost whatever love they had for one another, and it showed up in all types of bizarre behavior. They tolerate incest in their congregation. They go to court against one another. They have basically divided themselves between the haves and the have-nots, not just economically, but spiritually. And the have-nots 
aren't even allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. These, the haves have gone on ahead. And in chapter 14, we see that, in fact, their public worship is utterly chaotic. Why? They don't love each other. If they loved each other, they would wait and have the Lord's Supper together. If they loved each other, they would correct each other's behavior, as in chapter 5. They wouldn't take each other to court because they would say, there is something more important to me than winning this case. You may have wronged me, but I'm not going to go to court because I love you. So we have faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Because as Paul starts out at the beginning, you can have all faith. And you gain nothing. You are nothing. But love never fails. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are told that we love you because you first loved us. I would like to think that we do love you, but certainly our love is incomplete and imperfect. But in your grace, you look beyond that because of your deep love for us. May we reflect that love to one another. May we hear as a group of brothers and sisters, practice love. And in times of darkness, believe for one another. And a time of seemingly seeming hopelessness, may we hope for one another because we love each other. We are all imperfect, flawed, fallen creatures but we are people for whom Christ died. He gave his life that we might have life. We are to love our brothers and sisters. By your spirit, help us to think on these things, to meditate on them in the coming days, to see that knowledge is not the key, neither is faith or hope, or even gratitude, as wonderful as those things are but it begins with a heart of love. Father, speak to our hearts by your spirit. And may we be people marked by love. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.